Caching is a fundamental concept of computer science. When data is accessed frequently, we put that data in a place where it can be accessed even more quickly. We put the data in a cache. When data is accessed less often, we leave it in a place where the access time is slow and expensive. Netflix has a huge variety of data and a huge variety of access patterns for how that data gets retrieved from storage. In today's episode, Scott Mansfield gives an overview of Netflix's caching architecture, including EV Cache, the ephemeral, volatile cache built for Netflix's cloud architecture. Netflix is entirely on Amazon Web Services. As with other episodes about Netflix architecture, this show is a deeply technical case study. I enjoyed it a lot, and I hope you will too. Scott Mansfield is a senior software engineer at Netflix. Scott, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about caching and caching a distributed system, application layer caching. Let's start off with that term more generally. What does caching mean? So caching, um, to most people, would mean just storing the results of an expensive computation. So um, something like a memoization table for an algorithm or uh, just to speed up a slow database access. And what are some other instances where we might want to cache? Uh, so um, Netflix itself actually uses caches in somewhat of a different way where we have um, expensive computations just directly output into a cache and we deal with whatever cache misses we have in a different way other than going to like a permanent database. Can you describe some of the layers of an application where caching might occur? I mean, Netflix is a giant uh, distributed application. You've got the user who has his or her smartphone or desktop computer, and then you've got a Netflix server sitting somewhere, and then you've got all kinds of um, uh, other Netflix servers at different layers with different services. What are some different layers of this application stack where caching might occur in different ways? Sure. So um, I should preface this with I'm on the backend caching team. So my knowledge of the internals of the clients is somewhat limited, um, but I do know that they do some caching of results from the backend to um, speed up the UI a little bit um, or to prevent unnecessary access over the internet, which can be slow. Um, but in the backend is where a large portion of it happens. Um, for From my perspective, at least, uh, we have all kinds of different services handling all kinds of different data with their own dedicated cache so that they can speed up access to that uh, information. Um, there's also a third aspect to this. Um, a lot of people refer to our uh, OpenConnect CDN as a cache, which it is. Um, but as far to my knowledge, there's no like um, ultimate fallback into Amazon or something for that information. So um, our OpenConnect CDN would also be considered a, a cache for the video bits that get served out to our users. What are the trade-offs of time and space that we're often considering with caching? Time and space. So the um, access to our databases, which is for us typically Cassandra, that access, um, if it's a very frequent access to the same piece of information, could be fast. Um, but Cassandra, because of all the guarantees it provides in terms of consistency, uh, just can't just cannot sustain the throughput that a in-memory cache like memcached can. Uh, so the space that we do that we pay is about um, double 
but not quite perfectly double. It depends on the information. Some information, we only keep a working set in cache, and other information, we actually attempt to keep the full set of data in cache at all times because it's just expensive to go get. So at Cassandra, the database, at the Cassandra level, the lowest level of the database uh, between you know between the application and Cassandra, there are multiple layers of caching, and the caching layers are perhaps highly available, less concerned with consistency, whereas at the database level, you're very concerned with consistency um, and the availability from the point of view of, of speed is maybe less of a concern. That's fairly accurate. I mean, we would always be concerned no matter what if we started to lose availability on either one of them. Um, but we, my team who runs the caching uh, infrastructure for the cloud-based services is heavily biased towards availability uh, and partition tolerance and not so much towards consistency, though we do monitor that for our users. So as we get into the Netflix-specific areas of caching, I saw this talk that you gave at Strange Loop, where you gave the example of a user signing up logging in to Netflix, picking a bunch of movies to define their preferences, and then starting to watch a movie. And you described just how many different caches are touched in that process. So how many, I mean, maybe you could talk about that in more color. Why are there so many caches that are touched in, you know, even just a, a simple user flow like that? Well, if you think about it, almost everything that we want to do when a user is logged in is going to want the information about that user as a context. So pretty much every single request that comes in through our API layer ends up going and retrieving the subscriber information out of um, the subscriber service and attaching that to the context on the way down. And typically that call will end up at an EV cache uh, call for subscriber information because there's a high temporal locality for that information. Um, but typic, the, the way that we divide up caches is basically per use case. So a lot of teams will have like one, but some teams have three or four that are dedicated just to them. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One is if somebody messes up and happens to um, overload the cache or just uh, write way too much information into it and start evicting data, we will end up with a smaller blast radius. And two is we can tune the access on the client side and uh, the server side uh, performance characteristics differently per cache based on what their needs are. So some people would be constrained by data size and other people are constrained by bandwidth or the packets uh, per second capability of the NIC on the server side. So you mentioned this term EV cache. At Netflix, this is a caching technology that you've developed. What is EV cache? So EV cache itself actually stands for ephemeral volatile cache. Um, a bit of a repetitive name, but it sounds pretty nice whenever <laughs> you say it in, a, in an acronym format. The point of it is to be a key value store for Netflix um, that's not perfectly consistent. It's not... Um, like it's it's obviously not perfect. No system is, but um, we focus on being very pragmatic and saying whenever we have these consistency metrics, you're consistent enough. Or um, whenever you have a partition fail, we are not going to go down because we have built this assumption in that partitions will fail. Um, so another aspect of this is that things do fail, and part of that is just because we're on Amazon, which 
compared to a data center environment is incredibly dynamic. We can have a, an instance fail at any time. And we've actually had instances um, failed. I, I don't know if there's uh, a day that's gone by. There probably is. But I mean, the, the point is we have so many instances running that there's just a natural degradation of hardware over time that we're going to experience. And we have to be able to work around that. Um, and just uh, zones also can sometimes fail. That's very, that's very rare. Um, and regions can become very unstable for a variety of reasons. Most of the time, that's actually Netflix's fault. Uh, but that doesn't stop us from having to be able to deal with that kind of failure. Um, so a large part of the product itself is just dealing with failure. So the adjectives in EV cash, ephemeral, volatile, ephemerality refers to the fact that from Netflix's point of view, Netflix is hosted on Amazon almost entirely. The servers on EC2, uh, Amazon's compute cluster, they do not give you guarantees that they're not going to fall over. So they are, in a sense, ephemeral. You're, if you build on Amazon, you are supposed to architect your system in a way where any of these nodes can fail at any given time. I mean, Amazon has a huge business incentive to not have them fail. But the point of view, the point of view of any distributed systems engineer is that one of these servers could fail at any time, and you have to be ready for that. And a consequence of that ephemerality is that the data that is stored in your cache is, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this terminology, but is volatile. It is data that can disappear, it can change. You don't have strong guarantees on uh, what is the data in uh, in a given cache entry. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that term, but what does that term volatile mean? So typically when people think about caching, it ends up being this um, accelerator for something like a slower database. But for us, um, it has evolved quite a bit from there. So the, the name is almost like a semi-misnomer at this point because a lot of the data is expected not to be ephemeral and not to be volatile. Um, it's ephemeral in the sense that you might put a TTL of like seven days on it, but it's expected to stay there for seven days. And there's very few use cases that actually want their data to be truly ephemeral and volatile. Uh, so it ends up being, like I said, somewhat of a semi-misnomer. Um, typically, our use cases will have, um, actually, they run the gamut. So we have some people using it for 15 minutes. Um, and that's typically information that we could lose because they expected to lose it anytime in the next 15 minutes. But also, we have people storing data in there for two weeks. And if that data disappears, a large portion of it, then we could send an excessive amount of traffic to the back end, uh, which is not going to be scaled to instantaneously take like 10x traffic. So we have to actually worry about that kind of thing um, quite a bit for certain use cases. So let's talk about some of those use cases at a high level. In what ways is EVCache particularly useful for Netflix? So you said you uh, you saw the Strange Loop presentation. Yeah, um, sure. That's most of the things that we do. Uh, there's one other use case that I didn't mention in there, um, but I'll go I'll go through those. So there's um, the classical cache in front of a database to accelerate the slowness of a database that has better consistency guarantees, uh, and that is a use case that we do have. 
and there's several of those and different kinds of information. Um, let subscriber information that I mentioned earlier is one of those kinds of things. We rely on Cassandra to actually be consistent and durable over time because um, we don't provide those guarantees. But whenever they want to access the data, it's certainly much faster to get it out of EVCache. Uh, same goes for things like the uh, A-B test information that we store. So every user has got to be in at least a dozen A-B tests at all times. And um, not that they are required to, but we just have so many going on um, that there, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of A-B tests on every single user. So your experience is actually fairly unique whenever you log in. Um, that information comes from a cache uh, with a database behind it. Um, so there's also inf there's also places where we have things that are classical session storage. So if you have um, like a, a LAMP stack and you have a memcache holding your session data, um, that's effectively the same thing that we're doing, just at a, a different kind of way. So if you are um, if you're watching a video. Whenever you start out, we start up a session for you so we can keep track of that um, playback session. And then over time, the client is actually sending back bookmarks. So it's saying, hey, uh, every minute, this is where I am, this is where I am, this is where I am. And we get these events over time. Um, and one of the things they do with those events is to write into an EV cache for that session. And uh, at the end, they would do something like a session rollup. Um, which would write or delete from uh, an EV cache node. So that's like a session lifecycle kind of management. Um, and there's no database for that. They rely on EV cache to be up and consistent and available enough. And um, they have architected their system quite intelligently to be able to deal with failures whenever they don't have this information. Um, so let's see, a third use case is um, quite an interesting one, actually. So this is a very different use case than a lot of other ones that I've seen for a cache. Um, there is personalization algorithms that run uh, every night to generate a new home page um, in several stages actually for every single profile of every single account on the service and that kind of uh, data is not stored in a database anywhere um, it used to be and they realized they didn't really need to because they could recreate it uh, if they needed to um, or serve a fallback and these, um, these large-scale pre-computes run every night and dump their data into an EV cache uh, cluster. Um, so stop me if you have <laughs> anything else. I've, I've been practicing a talk, so I have this all kind of in my head. No, I mean, I, the, well, the, the personalization case is quite interesting because uh, the idea that, you know, you, you run this huge batch computation and then you actually don't store the result in a highly durable area because all that really matters for is the UI. Um, the um, we have a couple ways to to deal effectively with data loss there, um, so we have fallbacks. That's the that's the main thing really is whenever we can't get data for your homepage, we can serve you a homepage that is somewhat close-ish to what you would have had, and it allows you to actually get data and start streaming. It would be worse if we showed you like a oops, we can't talk to Netflix right now. Uh, so we give you a, a something um, that we think is close to what you would have gotten. So I, I, I want to scale back a little bit and talk about the like how how EVcache is constructed. Uh, now that we've talked about some of the use cases and how an application developer at Netflix uses it. So EVcache has a client library and a server. So if I'm a service owner. I need to use that library to get access to a remote server cache that I would probably spin up at some point or ask the EV cache team to spin up for me. 
explain more of the contract between the client and the server in an EV cache deployment or integration. Maybe if you have a canonical uh, example of of an EV cache uh, of an application that would want to consume EV cache uh, that you could use to describe the client server interaction that might be useful. Sure. So um, let's just take the uh, A-B test information. That's a fairly straightforward one. Um, So typically inside Netflix, we have client teams create a jar that they are going to give to other teams that they want, um, who want to access the information that that team owns. So in this case, the A-B team would create a client jar and other people would consume that jar. And that jar would then turn around and consume the EVCache client jar. Typically, the applications that are going to get AV information don't really know where that information came from. It's just behind a call to the, to the AV client. And um, from there, they just use the, uh, the API on the EVCache client, which is fairly similar to what you would find on a generic memcached client. So like get, set, delete um, methods. And most of the complexity is hidden behind those. Um, so do you want me to, to talk about like how the client is talking to the servers directly and how the servers are set up? And Yes, that would, that would be helpful. So for a deployment for things like uh, AB test information, we would have a, uh, in a single region, an AWS region, there's uh, multiple availability zones. And each one of those availability zones will set up a separate cluster of machines that represents a whole copy of the data inside the cache. Um, so logically, it's the AB cache, but inside that cache, there are three separate physically distant copies of the data. Um, so in this case, we would, on the client side, if you wanted to go retrieve some information, um, we have, um, when, it sets, when it starts up, it will go out to uh, our service discovery system called Eureka, and it will retrieve the information about all the boxes that are in this EV cache cluster. And from there, it can uh, set up the groupings for um, the copies of data and use a consistent hashing algorithm to figure out which box to go to to get that data. Now, we use direct connections from our clients to the server, so there's no intermediary uh, service. I know other companies have done that before, where they have like a multi-tier routing layer uh, Facebook has McRouter for a while, um, but we don't do that. We actually have direct connections from the clients to the servers. So a, a client, whenever it wants to go get this information, can figure out what the topologically closest server is, so the one that's in the same AZ effectively, and go to that shard to try and retrieve the information. So do these EV cache servers ever talk to each other, or uh, it, do I just have a... Uh, you know, do, is do all I need to do is you know I just know I just try to find the the server that is closest to me and I just need to talk to that one directly and then if I have another request to my service, uh, then I'm gonna find uh, that location again. But these servers never need to talk to each other. Um, I don't know if you talk about that. So our servers are con- entirely independent. They don't talk to each other. We've had some cases where we said, hey, maybe we could do this if we had them talking to each other. But um, the engineering effort to get that working is just uh, not worth it um, because it's working so well right now for us. 
um, the clients also are completely independent. The only point of contact they have is effectively the service discovery mechanism that we have. Um, so each client is independently uh, connecting to all of the servers, and the servers can uh, are they have zero knowledge of all the other boxes in the cluster. I'm sorry. Can you say again the the de- like the contract between the client and the server? Do did you say I need to go through a layer of service discovery if I'm the client to find the server that is closest to me? But there's only like one layer of service discovery. Uh, so the way Netflix operates, there's no like load balancers internally. So in general, if people want to go find a REST service, um, we actually have a, a REST client that will di- directly connect to all of our uh, service like hosts. So this is a common pattern for Netflix. Um, I sometimes forget to explain that because it's just so deeply ingrained in the way that we access information. So we um, have a central service discovery system called Eureka, um, and every machine, every server, whenever it starts up, is going to register itself with Eureka and say, hey, I'm here, here's some metadata about me. And then anybody who wants to go find that service can pull that information and find that server that is out there for that service. And we use the same mechanism for EVCache, where every EVCache server, when it starts up, will register itself with Discovery. Uh, and we use our own client to pull that information and uh, and use it. So let's scale back to another type of simple question. Can you just explain how a write and a read work in EVCache at whatever depth of explanation you think would be appropriate? So the, the reads we kind of covered earlier... Um, if we have three copies, the one box is going to be in one AZ and it can try the EV cache server that has that information that is in the local availability zone. And we know that to be faster, uh, in an absolute sense, because going between availability zones takes like a millisecond or so over the network. Um, and so we know it to be faster to go locally. And if that fails for any reason, uh, we have essentially backup paths that we can go on to get that data. And we effectively randomly choose between a backup at that point. And this will mask temporary failures like an instance dying. Um, So writes on the other side are the client's responsibility to uh, complete. So we don't have any sort of Lambda architecture or anything coming through from the backside. The clients, whenever they want to write something, will write three times for three copies. Or if we have nine copies, they would write nine times. And this all happens concurrently, so it's not like it takes a really long time. Um, And we give our clients the option to drop the futures on the floor if they so choose. Most people do that. Um, And we also provide this mechanism for clients to choose what consistency level they'd want to observe before they move on. Uh, So we have different clients with different needs who will be able to use that. so in, in the AB example that we had before, if I want to say this person now has this AB information, um, it would make three separate writes to three separate copies to the shards that hold that information. Whenever we talk about caching, we need to talk about the concept of eviction because in caches, you typically have some fixed amount of space or semi-fixed amount of space, and you say uh, whenever this space fills up, I've got some sort of eviction policy, or you could also have a time-based eviction where you say, okay, if this piece of data gets accessed from the database, 
we put it in the cache and we give it a TTL, a time to live, and we say, okay, if this piece of data gets accessed again in the next minute, if your time, if your TTL is 60 seconds, then that 60 seconds gets reset. But if that 60 seconds expires, maybe you throw that piece of data out of the cache, and if it gets accessed again, then there's a cache miss. Um, there's all kinds of cache eviction policies we could talk about. How does cache eviction typically work in EV cache? We try not to evict at all. Okay. So the... Um, when I mentioned earlier that EV cache is somewhat of a misnomer, we've gotten to the point where people essentially expect information that they put there to be there until the TTL. Uh, there's very few use cases that are comfortable with having this rolling eviction like window of data, like this rolling window of data that gets evicted out of the tail end. Um, typically, when we see evictions, it's actually a problem. We want people to be able to write data and be able to get it back later. Um, because of the volumes that we're talking about, we can't suddenly lose 10% of data all the time and have people be happy about it. Um, so we actually, to, to, to answer the question more directly, uh, the LRU algorithm, algorithm that we use um, is the memcached eviction algorithm. Um, it has a very interesting hot, warm, cold LRU uh, eviction per um, allocation slab inside um, MCACHD, which is pretty cool. Um, and that's what we rely on, and it's very reliable. So it's working for us. Okay, then let's talk about that in more detail because EVCache uses MemcacheD under the hood. MemcacheD, for those who don't know, is an in memory object storage system. How is MemcacheD useful, and what did you actually need to build on top of it to have the requirements for EVCache satisfied? So memcached is really great at being a cache on its own uh, as a single process on a single box. Beyond that, you have to uh, do your own organization and grouping in order to be able to provide things like evcache has. So we um, rely at the base level on a spy memcached client, which does groupings of servers. Um, but then we have a level above that. Um, we also have a modified spy memcached client, so it's not entirely stock. Um, but we have a, level, a layer above that that provides this multiple copy, um, different uh, access patterns and retries and other things that are higher level requirements for the client. Okay, and you mentioned the uh, the LRU algorithm of memcached and how that was uh, quite interesting. Can you talk more about how that works and and why it's a good use case? And also just like, I don't know, disambiguate for me. If stuff never gets evicted or rarely gets evicted, uh, I mean, if people who are listening to this, they might be like, okay, so the entire Netflix database is in memory, but it's also on disk in Cassandra somewhere, or what exactly is going on here? Maybe help me understand that. All right, so we have um, a lot more data in Cassandra than is fronted by EVCache. There's a lot of people who do not need the speed, so they don't have it. It's a it's an engineering judgment and a systems, like you, when you analyze it, when you say, well, we could be uh, we could be doing this at in 2% of the time if we put a cache in front and it's in the hot pass for a user request. Well, you should probably put a cache in front so that you can accelerate that, as long as you can stand the um, potential small inconsistency that it introduces. 
but there's lots of people who put data in Cassandra who uh, don't need a cache. Um, so we don't have everything in caches. Um, but to, to give you an example, there's one service um, whose actual response is in like the two, three, four megabyte range. Um, and I won't say which service exactly, but uh, it's um, a very large amount of data. And to get to gather that information to create this data uh, is relatively speaking slow. But for us, we can serve it quickly. Um, but if we have a cache that goes down, the databases behind that service and the service itself wouldn't be able to um, scale up even remotely fast enough to, to take the load. Um, so there's, there's different use cases, and we certainly don't have a cache in front of everything. Um, and like I said before, there's things that don't have anything behind it that are a cache. So it's, um, there's some overlap. But if, you, if you'd imagine this like Venn diagram of data, there's, there is overlap with EVCache and Cassandra databases, but uh, it's not entirely the same thing. Software Engineering Daily has 20,000 engineers listening Monday through Friday. If you are hiring, or if you have a product that you would like to get into the hands of engineers, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This podcast is sustained by the advertisers, and if you would like to become one, or even if you're just curious and you want to learn more, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thanks for listening. have talked a bit about the ephemeral nature of working on top of AWS, which is Netflix's entire architecture. Um, I saw you mention in a talk that AWS kills more nodes than Chaos Monkey does. So Chaos Monkey is this service that was built to kill nodes randomly just to prepare uh, Netflix to be anti-fragile. Uh, but it's just funny that AWS has this anti fragile notion built in by killing more of your nodes than this chaos monkey service actually does. So how does that affect the architecture of EV cache? Right. So I should say that, um, we run like 10,000 plus servers. So it's something that we see constantly, but not because AWS is in any way like unstable. Um, it's just a natural attrition of hardware. It's just reality. Um, so we have them, they actually will notify us and say like, hey, these instances are going to go away because they're on degraded hardware. And we will actually go kill those proactively because otherwise they would have this long, slow death that actually would cause problems. Um, and we also, on the flip side, we, uh, as a stateful data service that some people rely on to take the brunt of the load for their service, we tend to keep Chaos Monkey at a low sort of background level. So for other people, it's going to be the other way around where Chaos Monkey actually kills more instances than AWS does, but we're just in this unique position um, where we have a low level of Chaos Monkey activity and a large number of servers. So we just see this attrition rate. Um, so for the, the architecture itself, um, whenever we have these failures, right now we have multiple copies. Um, that is our answer. And if we have this consistent, we have this consistent hashing algorithm. So each copy of the data, each one of those separate clusters is going to have a different distribution. There's no assigned shard. 
And by doing so, if we do that, we have 100 instances in each copy. If we have two copies and 100 instances in each copy, we lose one out of each. We've actually lost one uh, ten thousandth of the data, not one one hundredth of the data. So the 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 hashing algorithms overlap um, basically such that you don't lose uh, a whole shard if you if you lose two boxes. And what about the failure of entire availability zones? Do you want to talk about the uh, resilience that that uh, EV cache has to build in to be resilient against that? That ends up being mostly scaling problems. So we end up just scaling such that we could take the load from a failed availability zone on the remaining copies. And then I guess the latency just goes down a little bit because you're not accessing the most, or the latency goes up a little bit because you're not accessing the most, the closest availability zone, you're accessing the closest one that's actually up. Yeah, something like that. But it's... um, it's about a millisecond, maybe cross zone latency. So um, few people actually notice that. So there is this uh, more complex case uh, of the, I guess the pr- uh, the primary store for Netflix. You described this, um, although I guess I guess is that what you're describing basically about the fact that like you you want you want to basically have everything that gets accessed on a regular basis in EV cache? Is that what is defined by the primary store? Uh, no, so that's, um, that I would, the, 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 the use case I was just describing, I would consider still something that's a cache in front of a database. It's just that the, the call to the service into the database in this case is um, like an order of magnitude slower than some other people's calls to a database. So it ends up being just much more expensive. Okay, so then let's let's talk about fresh fresh perspective. What is the primary store? Why is EV cache useful for building it? So for the primary store, it's things that are personalization algorithm output. Um, so when we build that homepage, we have these multiple different stages, and different online services will p- pick and choose out of those different outputs to produce their output. And in order to uh, have fast storage for them they just use EV cache um, but the hidden assumption there is that they have a way to give you something even if they don't have the data in EV cache and that's our fallback right so this is the interesting idea of the fact that when you're doing something complex like building if you build Netflix's personalization page the complexities of that pipeline it involves so many different caches and those caches have dependencies on each other that it essentially forms a, a DAG, a directed acyclic graph. So can you describe that in more detail and uh, how that's relevant to this conversation? Yeah, that's one of the questions I got at Strangeloop, and I realized at the time that I really didn't spend enough time explaining that because it was um, incredibly vague the way I said it in the presentation. So this this DAG is, is more of a concept that ends up naturally occurring because of inter-team relationships uh, and it's not materialized in any way. So that DAG is more of a, this team produces this kind of algorithmic output, and another team needs that to perform some part of their work. So it's just implicit. It's not like it's not like this actually, it's not that like you take this into consideration when you're uh, architecting EV cache. It's just, it's just an uh, emergent property of the architecture. Yeah, an emergent property of the architecture, which is uh, highly reflective of the interpersonal relationships 
So like inter-team relationships, this team relies on that team to do something and that team, um, sorry, team A relies on team B to do something, uh, produce some output and team B will just dump into EVCache. Therefore, team A has to go to uh, the EVCache in order to retrieve that data. I hope I got my A's and B's right there, but I should be clear. <laughs> okay. Um, you have discussed Kafka playing a key role in providing the bus for metadata for EVCache. Can you explain how Kafka is used? Netflix, as an organization, runs as a global organization. Like We have servers running in three different AWS regions. We have US West 2, US East 1, and EU West 1. And that architecture is a full N plus 1 architecture, meaning that any one region could go down uh, and we can serve everybody else, or we can serve everybody, I mean, from the other two regions. In order to support this kind of architecture, uh, EVCache as a product has developed this uh, inter-region replication system that uh, in real time, as things are written, will replicate that right to the other two regions from wherever it was written. And this, uh, the backbone of that is uh, intra-region communication via Kafka between the clients that are actually writing and the replication system that is reading that data out of Kafka and actually performing the replication. So in your talk, you also discussed how EVCache is evolving. Uh, you are starting to write data to disk on the EVCache servers. This is pretty interesting to me because instead of being a purely in-memory cache layer, you now have an L1, L2 cache where you've got some data in the in-memory portion of the EV cache servers, and you've got some stuff that's on disk. So why is this important? So that project is called Moneta. And as a team, when we are looking around at the different use cases that we have, um, mostly the primary store use case, um, those are replicated across regions. So we would have that data um, computed in one region, and it, we replicate it out to the other two. Uh, so that data is, exists in all three, except uh, if I'm watching Netflix in California, I'm going to be hitting U.S. West 2 most likely. And if I'm watching in U.S. West 2 all the time uh, and we're holding this data in memory um, in multiple copies in each region. So now we're holding it in memory in U.S. West 2 for me, for somebody who's actively visiting, but we're also holding it in memory in U.S. East 1 and EU West 1 for people who are never going to go there, uh, except if we're doing a Chaos Kong or something. So um, we observed this and said, wow, we're spending quite a bit of money on holding data in RAM that could be held cheaper on disk. Um, so we developed this uh, new server that... Uh, looks basically just like Memcached, but behind it is this system that has Memcached itself as an L1 cache and a custom-developed um, L2 layer that stores data on disk that's based on uh, RocksDB. Okay, explain again what those cost optimizations are that you get out of EVCache, because this is really crucial. Right, so that uh, the, the hot data that we have um, is accessed basically in one region, uh, and the data that's cold there is basically never accessed. So in this case, we are able to hold the hot data set in memcached in RAM, and that's at RAM speed. And if we have somebody um, come from another region errantly, or if we have a Chaos Kong, we can still quickly fill in our hot data set from the disk, um, but not have to spend all the money on the full data set residing in memory. 
Okay, and talk more about the interaction between the hot data and the cold data on a single EV cache instance uh, in the event when those two, uh, the L1 and L2 layers need to interact. Okay, so this is actually one of the places that we do expect evictions. Um, so this is a <laughs> this is actually tough for our clients to wrap their heads around because a lot of them actually have alerts on evictions at this point, um, and they will get uh, at least an email, if not a page, saying, "Hey, your EV cache is evicting." Um, but that's just a metric on Memcached. Um, so we rely on the Memcached LRU. So uh, we rely on the Memcached LRU to evict items that have been least recently used, um, relatively straightforward. And for us, we have L1 as a true subset of the data in L2, meaning anytime something is evicted out of L1, we don't have to worry about what do we do with this data. Um, We know it's already in L2 because of the way we've written the application. So if anybody wants that information again, they can come back. And when it's read out of L2, it'll be written back into L1 in order to have it at RAM speed next time. Okay. And you mentioned that the disk, uh, the L2, is managed by RocksDB, which I know is a key value store. And that's about all I know about RocksDB. By the way, if anybody out there is uh, listening that is a committer to RocksDB and maybe wants to connect me with somebody, I'd love to do a show on that. But what what is RocksDB and how do you use it? So RocksDB is actually a very cool piece of technology. Uh, it's a Facebook product that was developed off of the basis of LevelDB, which came out of Google. And it's a log-structured merge database. Whenever the uh, Whenever you're writing into disk, it will write into like an in-memory buffer into these set size buffers, and then it will merge some of those into a uh, immutable sorted table on disk. And these are like your L0 layer. And whenever that fills up, it will do a compaction. It'll go through the L0 and uh, get rid of anything that shouldn't be there anymore um, and compact these into some bigger files that are your L1. And this goes on and on and on. Uh, like L1, L2, L3, and you can configure like how many levels you want. Um, so it's actually a really cool piece of technology. And I know that Facebook itself has actually replaced the MySQL storage engine that they have with a RocksDB-based storage engine that they wrote themselves and uh, saved quite a lot of space. There's a really cool talk that I saw um, at the AtScale conference this year on that. Why was this second generation of EV cache uh, architecture. Why well, was this written in GoLang? Um, this was an interesting aspect of uh, your talk that you know this stuff was written in Go. Right. So that is um, unusual for Netflix. We're typically a Java shop unless you have a good excuse for doing something different. In our case, we do actually have a good excuse. Um, we have some caches. You know, uh, medium-ish is maybe five thousand concurrent connections. Um, and medium large would be like 10,000. Some of them, the large ones have like 20,000 plus concurrent connections to the, each server. Um, that's an artifact of having every client connect to every server. So, um, that is one of the downsides of that type of architecture is you have to be able to handle this many connections. Um, the multi-tier architecture can help solve that. Um, but we're not there yet. The, uh, there being, we don't have so many connections that we have to worry about it yet. So go, uh, as a language makes it pretty easy to write a server that can handle many, many connections um, by doing this one go routine per connection kind of pattern. 
And that makes most of the rest of the code very straightforward because it lives in its own little universe. So each connection is its own essentially mini process running on, uh, on the box. So this, this uh, inherent concurrency in the language allows us to write code that's very straightforward but still um, performant. So on that point, the, the performance for us is actually quite important. We have um, typical client-side latencies. The, the 50th percentile is uh, under a millisecond, and we want to keep it there. Um, so whenever we're shifting from something like memcached, which is um, screaming fast, I, um, we don't want to slow it down too much, and that was the goal. Um, we knew we were going to slow it down. Um, but putting Go in the way means that we have this highly performant language, even though it does have a GC, it has a very low latency GC, um, and we can use that to our advantage and, and not uh, slow down too much. What kinds of cost optimizations did you end up getting from this second generation of EV cash? Uh, well, I won't give out exact numbers, um, like dollar figures, but uh, we did have one cash that reduced in in cost uh, by 70% because its working set was just so small relative to the full data set. Wow, that's incredible. Um, 70% gains is probably pretty big over the uh, over the integral of all EV caches running uh, in Netflix, even if you can't get 70% on all of them, um, something similar. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the future and the current difficulties. What are the challenges that you're trying to overcome? What are the upgrades you're making to EV cache today? Um, so we're in the midst of developing a system that will be able to react to the volatility that we've been talking about in Amazon. So when we lose an instance, we want to um, take the information that we already have in the other copies and be able to backfill that instance. Um, recently, we um, requested a memcached feature um, and the, the maintainer helpfully put it in for us. There's this feature that you can iterate over the metadata about all the keys in the cache, which previously wasn't possible at all. And we use that feature to do things like uh, metadata dumps. And with those metadata dumps, now we have this new world of like, well, we could take a backup of the entire cache because we have all the metadata. We can uh, take all the metadata, do some hashing on it, figure out which keys are on that lost instance and go backfill that instance. Or um, our primary want for this was actually whenever we do deployments. Um, deployments on a stateful system end up being, for us, a parallel set of servers um, because it's relatively fast. And if we just add a server, it messes up the hashing. So we kind of have to, um, we kind of have to have a parallel set of servers. And if we have this ability to dump the metadata, we can now use that metadata to pull all the data out of the old cache and write it into the new cache, uh, which increases our deployment speed quite a bit. We used to have to wait for the entire TTL of that cache. Um, so that's uh, being developed right now. Um, and in the future, well, there's more things to come, but uh, there's nothing that I don't think I can, I don't think there's anything I can say publicly yet. Um, so just to close off, so there was a show I did a while ago with Uber about Uber's Ring Pop technology, uh, which is like this peer-to-peer -peer, 
uh, as I understand, as I remember it, it was kind. Of, it's kind of this peer-to-peer layer of caching for uh, geospatial data. Like they have so much geospatial data that they need to store and access that they use this peer-to-peer system. Um, I don't know if you've looked at that at all, um, or if you have anything interesting to say about peer-to-peer technology. Because when I think about uh, Netflix and Uber, uh, in many ways there are uh, architectural similarities between the two. So I don't know if you have anything to to comment on in uh, in that collection of ideas. No, unfortunately, I haven't seen Ring Pop in any detail. Um, I would have to go check it out. Uh, it sounds like a cool project. Um, I do know there's a bunch of people who used to be at uh, at Netflix who are working at Uber now. So maybe that's where some of the similarities came from. Um, but in general, I think uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I have to go. I have to go check out Ring Pop. Okay, so nothing in the peer-to-peer space that you're looking at right now. Uh, not, not really. We, like, like I said, we we tend to be more um, pragmatic, and since we don't need that kind of complexity, we tend to leave it off the table. All right. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you about EV Cash and Netflix's architecture. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.